Welcome back to the Young China Watchers podcast. We're a network of young professionals interested in China. Our 10 chapters around the world organize virtual and live events with China experts. My name is Sam Columby, and I head the global editorial team. On the 30th of June, 2020, Beijing implemented the Hong Kong National Security Law, a move which sent chills throughout Hong Kong and sparked criticism from major players in the international community. At the time, officials promised the law would not substantially alter Hong Kong's way of life, but many greeted that rhetoric with skepticism, and some critics even declared the death of the one country, two systems framework. So over a year later, what has been the actual effect of the national security law on Hong Kong and its people? To answer that, YCW's multimedia editor, Joshua Cartwright, spoke with Thomas Kellogg, a leading scholar of legal reform in China, Chinese constitutionalism, and civic society movements in China, who currently serves as the executive director of the Center for Asian Law at Georgetown University. Hey, Tom. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for uh, making the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, no. It's, uh, I think it's going to be a fun conversation, so I'm looking forward to it. I wanted to start with a bit of background. How did the Hong Kong national security law come to be? What were Beijing's justifications and how did Hong Kongers respond? Yeah, uh, so I think the, the core answer to that question, it really starts with the 2019 pro-democracy uh, movement, which obviously stemmed from the anti-extradition movement that began in the spring of 2019 and quickly morphed into uh, probably one of the biggest pro-democracy protest movements in history, uh, right? You had millions of people uh, taking to the street, uh, streets in July and August and after that uh, in uh, 2019. And I think Beijing was quite alarmed by what they were seeing and also by what they viewed as uh, the Hong Kong government's inability to deal with uh, the protests in uh, a way that they thought was effective. Um, and so I think we can now, yes, we can't say for sure, we can hypothesize that Beijing started thinking about steps that they could take to enhance their direct control over Hong Kong and particularly over what they considered to be the national security of Hong Kong, um, probably from uh, 2019 and from the emergence of those uh, protests fall of 2019, uh, most uh, likely, even though the people of Hong Kong didn't learn that a new national security law was moving forward until uh, spring of 2020, uh, right? And then its enactment in on July 1st, um, 2021. You know, as we talk about in the, the report that we put out uh, a while back, the whole drafting of the national security law, that drafting process was shrouded in secrecy. There was only limited uh, engagement with even senior Hong Kong government officials. And we think this approach to drafting the national security law violates the basic law, Hong Kong's mini constitution. Um, and there's a whole bunch of stuff in there that I think we'll get into specific provisions that we also think violate the basic law. But that is sort of the background of how we got to a new national security law for Hong Kong. So kind of to follow up on that, critics say that the national security law or NATSEC law goes against the basic law and is illegal and unnecessary. Beijing obviously disagrees. And what I was wondering is from a legal standpoint, who is right? Well, uh, I would take the view and I think most um, sort of 
comparative or international lawyers who take a look at the national security law and the basic law would take the view that the national security law goes so far beyond Beijing's powers under the basic law that it really has to be consideration be considered a violation of it. Um, so we talked a minute ago about the fact that the drafting of the uh, national security law was done more or less exclusively by Beijing with no consultation uh, with the Hong Kong government or the people of Hong Kong. That's a violation uh, of the basic law because the legislative power for Hong Kong laws lies with the Hong Kong Legislative Council, uh, right, under the basic law constitutional structure. Uh, the, the national security law also, in terms of some of its specific uh, criminal provisions, uh, violates the human rights guarantees um, of the uh, basic law. So there too, you have an inconsistency between the basic law and the national security law. And then, uh, as I hope we will talk about a little bit more uh, during this conversation, the national security law creates these new structures, uh, national security structures that for the first time since the 1997 handover have uh, mainland Chinese officials based in Hong Kong handling different aspects of, again, what they refer to as national security. In other words, you have Chinese officials engaging in government functions in Hong Kong, which also is a violation of the, the basic law and a violation of the core principle of Hong Kong people governing Hong Kong. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of things that Beijing can do under the basic law and has a lot of powers under the basic law, but the core elements of the national security law itself are way outside uh, of the powers that it does have. Right. And I remember also that uh, Beijing said that Hong Kong had not uh, taken the time to put together its own national security law. And given the fact that Hong Kong had not acted, Beijing had to act. What's your response to that argument? Sure. So as you point out, uh, there is a particular provision of the basic law, Article 23 of the basic law, that does call on uh, Hong Kong to enact uh, national security laws on its own. Um, and it is true uh, that Hong Kong has not moved forward on that uh, Article 23 agenda. That doesn't mean, and the text of Article 23 doesn't suggest uh, that if Hong Kong doesn't act, Beijing can. And in fact, I would argue that if Article 23 says, which it does say, uh, that the power of drafting national security legislation rests with uh, the Hong Kong legislature and with the Hong Kong government, then that means that Beijing doesn't have uh, that power. So, you know, Article 23 clearly, you know, lays out the division of labor there, and it's with Hong Kong and not with Beijing. Certainly Beijing could say to Hong Kong, look, we really think you should get moving on this. That's within their right to register that concern or complaint, but it's not within their rights to say, well, you haven't done it, so we will. That's just not the way that it goes. All right, so now I want to turn to your analysis, along with your colleague Lydia Wong of the NASA Law. You both have published two reports so far about the rule of law and human rights implications of it. And before we deal with sort of how it's changed the like, you know, political and legal structure of Hong Kong, I want to know how is the law being enforced? Who is being targeted for arrest? And what sort of actions are being cracked down on? 
No, that's a great question. Uh, so I think some people had the hope that Beijing would put this national security law into place um, and that it would be there as a sort of warning or what we might call sort of a sword of Damocles sort of hanging over the heads of people, but that it wouldn't be sort of actively used, uh, you know, at least initially. Um, that hope was quickly dashed more or less from day one uh, of the national security law, July 1, uh, 2020. And you had something like 10 arrests uh, on that day around protests um, uh, that were you know, timed as they are every year to the uh, anniversary of the 1997 Hong Kong handover. And then since then, you've had over 150 uh, arrests um, more or less uh, some number of arrests every single month, uh, right, between uh, July uh, 2020 and now September of 2021, and there's no end in sight. There were some uh, arrests uh, just yesterday, some charges, I should say, just yesterday under the national uh, security law, and it doesn't look like uh, there's going to be any respite anytime soon. So how have they used the national security law in the criminal space? I think we can talk about three or four different uh, ways. Uh, first is to chill uh, certain elements of uh, free speech rights, and they seem to be particularly obsessed with uh, key slogans from the 2019 protest movement, and they're arresting and charging people uh, for using these uh, slogans. So that's one thing that they wanna do. They wanna eliminate from the dis discourse certain slogans and certain ideas that they don't that they don't like. Uh, second, uh, they are trying to break ties between uh, the Hong Kong pro-democracy and human rights movement and uh, you know allies in the United States, Europe and elsewhere. Uh, we've seen uh, people like Jimmy Lai uh, being arrested for collusion uh, with foreign forces under the national security law. And I think you're gonna see more such charges in the uh, months to come that they really want to undermine uh, global support uh, for uh, Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement. And one way to do that is to criminally charge people who have had contacts with um, activists in the US or US government officials or European government officials who have testified uh, before Congress in some cases. Uh, so this is another core goal of the law. And I have to say that it, it's having some impact. I think in years past, you would have seen a steady stream of uh, visitors uh, from Hong Kong uh, trying to make sure that a US audience understands what's happening uh, in Hong Kong uh, right now. Uh, and we're not seeing that. And we're not seeing sort of the COVID, uh, you know, sort of video equivalent uh, of that. You're seeing people laying low uh, right now, especially when it comes to uh, international advocacy. And that's, that's really unfortunate. A third thing I would mention is the crackdown on political actors, opposition politicians, even sort of relatively mainstream and moderate uh, opposition politicians. And here I would highlight the uh, January 6th uh, arrests of something like 50 um, pro-democratic politicians for their involvement in a primary election that took place in uh, 2020. Uh, and so there you see the goal of Beijing to use the national security law to fundally, fundamentally reshape Hong Kong's political life, uh, right? And one of the great things about uh, Hong Kong has been its tradition 
even during the British, uh, the tail end of the British colonial period of uh, formal opposition politics and the formation of opposition political parties, obviously not something that's a feature of the mainland Chinese system. And the viability uh, of uh, that aspect of political life in Hong Kong is now deeply in question because you have people arrested merely for uh, holding a democratic uh, primary. And of course we have restructuring of the election law and we have vetting of candidates to participate in elections. So that element is under severe uh, strain. And of course we could see people go to jail, uh, right? Stemming from the January 6th arrests and those, those uh, uh, cases will move forward to trial probably sometime before the end of the year. So that's something else to watch. And just one last uh, point in terms of how they're national, using the national security law. Uh, since our report, our first report came out, we've now seen the national security law to be being used to crack down on uh, civil society activists. Uh, so they have been active in terms of hitting uh, the pro-democratic political parties. They've been active in the education space, as I'm sure we'll talk about. They've been active in the media space. Uh, and now they're using the national security law to crack down on um, civil society uh, organizations. So that's sort of the newest development uh, that is quite uh, troubling. Uh, and I think we're gonna see that be a core area of focus uh, for the next several weeks. The other thing I wanted to bring up is recently, a few weeks ago, I think it was, there was the verdict in the Tongyin Kate case. And that was the- yep first verdict to be handed down for a national security law case. So can you, can you talk about the uh, due process and human rights implications of that verdict? Yeah. Um, so just taking a step back for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the case, Tung Yin Kit is a, a young uh, Hong Kong uh, pro-democracy activist who is very much part of the rank and file, right? He's not someone who is well-known in the pro-democracy movement, was just sort of a foot soldier and had participated in the 2019 uh, protests and uh, obviously has very deeply uh, held beliefs about the need for democratic reform in Hong Kong. He participated in the July 1, 2020 protest and was driving his motorcycle around carrying a banner uh, uh, with some of these uh, forbidden uh, slogans uh, on them and uh, was uh, driving his motorcycle in what could be considered to be a dangerous way and, and trying to evade the police uh, checkpoints that were put up uh, to uh, stop pro protesters uh, from you know, gathering in specific places. Uh, long story short, uh, he did, in what seems to have been an attempt to evade arrest uh, uh, to strike some of the police officers while traveling at uh, a low speed. Um, there were some injuries uh, that ensued, not serious or life-threatening ones, but some inju injuries to the police officers and to Tony himself, um, and he was arrested, uh, right? And let me be clear that uh, that kind of activity in terms of driving uh, in a reckless manner and crashing into police officers, you can definitely be arrested for that, uh, right? You can be arrested for that uh, here in Washington, D.C., uh, and you can and, uh, you know, no doubt would be arrested for that in Hong Kong prior to the national security law. Where this case gets uh, strange is that they uh, charged uh, Tong with uh, inciting se secession and uh, with uh, terrorism. 
Um, and that, I think, is where the case gets uh, highly political and where the government's handling of the case and those kinds of charges uh, really illustrates the shift that is taking place in Hong Kong law from a situation where previously you would have had someone charged with you know, reckless driving or dangerous, dangerous driving, as it's called in the Hong Kong context, uh, to someone who's all of a sudden sort of being charged with terrorism, uh, right? And certainly in the United States, we think of terrorism as one of the most serious crimes that someone uh, could commit. Um, but if you take a sort of hard look at what Chung Yin Kit did, his uh, actions don't really fit uh, the best practice definition of terrorism. Uh, and so I think it's unfortunate uh, that the government went in that direction to try to uh, put that label on him. And I think it's very unfortunate uh, that the court convicted him both of terrorism and of uh, the inciting secession charge, which I think is equally uh, problematic. So now to go to the more systemic aspects, uh, I remember just before it was enacted, Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam told the Human Rights Council that the NASDAQ law would not undermine Hong Kong's legal and political autonomy, and that it would not be retroactive. But how does her promise stack up against the reality over a year later? Yeah, I, you know, I can't speak for her mindset at the time that she made that comment, but one thing I certainly can say is that Hong Kong's legal and political autonomy have been deeply damaged uh, by uh, the national security law, both its passage and by its aggressive implementation over the past uh, year plus uh, that it's been uh, on the books. On the retroactivity front, there is a, a slightly more positive uh, picture, at least in terms of uh, we have not yet seen uh, an active prosecution move forward on the basis of fully on the basis of actions uh, that took place before July 1. Now, having said that, we have seen uh, the national security authorities look into uh, things that took place before July uh, 1. This has happened in the Jimmy Lai uh, case and, and, and some other cases, um, but we don't yet know uh, how the government will make use of that information and how it would or could or um, might feed into a prosecution uh, going forward. So that's an area to watch, but to sort of be fair uh, that there has not yet been a classic example of uh, prosecute, retroactive prosecution uh, yet. Now on coming back to the political, uh, legal and political autonomy front, um, that's where the uh, picture is, is pretty bleak, uh, let's face it. Uh, you know, one of the things that we talk about in that first report is that Beijing had a lot of indirect influence over Hong Kong from, let's say, 1997 to 2014. They were more or less picking uh, the chief executive, and the chief executive has a lot of authority under Hong Kong's constitutional structure. Uh, Pro-Beijing political parties had certain advantages in terms of the electoral structure uh, in races for uh, legislative council seats. Um, so there were a lot of ways, and Beijing had other powers under the uh, basic law, including the power to interpret uh, the basic law under Article 158 uh, uh, of, of the basic law. So, you know, th they were able to shape events and influence events in a lot of uh, ways, but the national security law uh, moves from that kind of indirect influence uh, approach 
uh, to a hands-on direct exertion of authority approach. Uh, and so for someone like Carrie Lamb to say, oh, don't worry, we still have our legal and political autonomy. When you have uh, mainland Chinese officials based in Hong Kong for the first time making decisions about national security, um, what they term to be national security, making uh, decisions about education policy, uh, for example, making decisions about certain aspects of cultural policy through the potential banning of films. Uh, that's not the autonomy regime that the Hong Kong people were promised. Uh, and I think it's a very sort of troubling development. And it's sort of sad that the chief executive who's meant to stand up for the rights of the people of Hong Kong uh, is making statements like that. Right. And in addition to those more uh, direct impacts, you also wrote that in some ways the most pronounced effects of the law have been indirect. And that according to Hong Kongers you interviewed, the law has created a climate of fear, one that has permeated virtually all aspects of society. So how has this climate of fear affected, the, like not so much activists, but just the wider public's daily lives? And what does it mean for the Hong Konger identity? I think that's a great question, and it's sort of a more subtle aspect of what's happening in Hong Kong uh, right now that it gets a little bit less attention. Um, and you know, one way to th think about this is that uh, is to sort of draw that parallel with mainland China, uh, right? So, of course, the most e effective form of censorship uh, on the mainland, and and I would argue now in Hong Kong, is self censorship. Uh, right, people know where the lines are, and they, uh, you know, uh, quite understandably don't want to cross them, and so they tailor their behavior, their public uh, speech, their political, other forms of political activity accordingly, and so it's sort of almost self-enforcing. Um, you know, the national security law. Um, it's becoming more and more clear where some of the lines are, but we still don't know exactly uh, uh, you know, what's permitted and what's not permitted. And so people are in many cases being very cautious in terms of how they approach uh, um, you know, their engagement in political life uh, right now. Um, and so that has an impact on uh, the public in all sorts of ways, uh, right? If you're an average Hong Kong citizen and you wanna have an in-depth understanding of what's happening in you know, mainstream Hong Kong politics, if key political players are no longer speaking to the media, uh, then you have a situation in which uh, the reporting that you're reading, either in Chinese or in English, uh, lacks certain perspectives, uh, right? Because people don't want to get in trouble uh, merely on the basis of giving an interview uh, to Mingbao or a South China Morning Post where they say something that crosses the line and all of a sudden you have a pro-Beijing politician attacking you, saying, how could you say this? This is a violation of the national security law. That kind of self-censorship, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is very real. And it's a very important part of what's happening in Hong Kong right now. And keeping on with that self-censorship point, you talked about the effects it could have in the media uh, or just you know, people talking to journalists, but does that increase in self-censorship in Hong Kong did that make it harder to conduct your own research? How forthcoming were the Hong Kongers you interviewed? 
No, absolutely. So, you know, I had to, uh, I should say we actually, uh, Lydia uh, Wong, my co-author and I, uh, when we did these interviews, um, we had to uh, promise people anonymity, uh, right? To sort of say to them, uh, you know, look, we really want to have your unvarnished opinion about what's happening in Hong Kong. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, we are happy to also take steps uh, to ensure that you don't get in trouble for, for talking with us. And there were people who turned down our interview uh, request, people that we've spoken to uh, many times uh, before. So we experienced this phenomenon uh, firsthand. And we also had to take steps again to sort of make sure that we were uh, protecting the, our, our sources and getting people's um, you know, most critical takes on on what's happening right now. And I think this is going to be a long term problem. Uh, right. I think you're going to see more limits on uh, people being able to travel uh, to Hong Kong, more uh, U.S. researchers, academics and potentially even government officials being barred from entry to Hong Kong. Uh, so this is going to be a long term problem, uh, one that all of us are going to be struggling with uh, going forward. Yeah, it's um, it's unfortunate, I think, especially for not just journalism, yeah. but academia um, and numerous journalists, politicians and even some scholars. They declared early on that the national security law killed the one country, two systems framework. Now, one of the key findings in your report says the law directly threatens it. And you also talk about how th what the NSL couldn't end up doing is preserving the form, but undermining the substance of the one country, two systems framework. So how is one country, two systems holding up and what sort of future do you think it has? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I think it's hard to say that one country's two systems is, a, is an accurate way to describe uh, the situation in Hong Kong right now. Um, now that's not to say that there aren't uh, elements of the system that are uh, doing the best that they can. And that's certainly not uh, to say that you don't have uh, a vast difference between the level of freedoms that are enjoyed in Hong Kong, even in this very, very difficult moment, as compared with the level of freedoms that are enjoyed on the mainland, uh, right? Uh, there are serious uh, problems with uh, free speech and freedom of the press in Hong Kong, as we just discussed. Um, but there are still a number of news media outlets that are doing hard-hitting and fantastic work, even in the constrained environment that, that we're seeing right now. Uh, the Hong Kong judiciary uh, has not yet uh, figured out a way uh, to uh, deal with national security cases in a way that protects the rights of the accused. Um, but again, we're not seeing the kind of direct control of the judiciary in Hong Kong, you know, of the sort that you have on the mainland. So you do have to point out those differences between the two systems, even as you say, one country's two systems is not, no longer an accurate description of uh, the relationship uh, between Hong Kong and China, because China has sort of taken too much direct control and taken too much uh, direct power uh, uh, over the system as a whole uh, in a way that just can't be reconciled with the one country, two systems framework. Right. And just a follow-up question for that, because the one country, two systems framework was actually made with Taiwan in mind. So a hot topic of discussion now is what this all means for cross-strait relations. 
What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to fathom the larger strategic thinking of Beijing in terms of their response to the 2019 uh, protests and the 2020 national security law vis-a-vis Taiwan. Obviously, people in Taiwan were following uh, the uh, Hong Kong protests quite uh, closely and Beijing's heavy-handed response further solidified uh, opinion in Taiwan uh, that uh, there needed to be uh, a really sort of serious effort to protect uh, Taiwan uh, from uh, mainland predations. So if the long-term goal for Beijing is reunification uh, with uh, Taiwan, uh, their approach uh, to Hong Kong clearly sets that back. Now we can go into uh, the impact uh, that the uh, the 2019 protest movement and the uh, Beijing's heavy-handed response to it had on the uh, 2020 elections in Taiwan, obviously uh, playing a really key role in uh, Tsai Ing-wen's victory uh, in January of 2020. Uh, if, uh, as obviously is the case, Beijing wanted the KMT to, to win in 2020, they seem to be again acting against their own uh, interests uh, in, a, in a big way right there. Um, just one more point on this. I highly recommend uh, to your listeners the New York Times Magazine piece on uh, responses to uh, the Hong Kong protests uh, in uh, Taiwan that came, a, came out a couple of weeks uh, back and really shows how uh, many, in Hong Kong, uh, many in Taiwanese civil society are trying to help the uh, large number of uh, Hong Kong refugees who ended up in Taiwan uh, in 2019 and, and 2020, and, and perhaps even into 2021 uh, as, as well. And that group of people, I think, is going to influence thinking in uh, Taiwan and be a resource for Taiwanese people trying to understand what's happening in uh, Hong Kong and uh, on mainland China uh, for years to come. Uh, so that's another element of the story that I think is um, important. Definitely. And that actually perfectly segues into my last question, which is, what do you read on a daily basis to stay on top of developments in Hong Kong and just China in general? Yeah. I mean, I have to say this has been uh, a challenge. <laughs> so uh, my main area of focus traditionally has been um, China, has been uh, legal uh, and political developments in mainland China, and also China's approach to uh, international law. Um, and uh, the uh, furious pace of events in Hong Kong uh, and my effort to sort of understand them and comment on them has eaten into my China time, uh, which I feel somewhat ambivalent about. Uh, but coming back to your question in terms of uh, how to how how should people be wrapping their heads around uh, what's happening in Hong Kong uh, right now? Uh, on the English language uh, side, you have outlets like the South China Morning Post, which I think is trying to do a great job. Uh, you have the Hong Kong Free Press, uh, which is a much more sort of scrappy, independent news outlet without uh, the level of resources that the South China Morning Post has. Um, and on the Chinese uh, language side, you have uh, you know organizations like uh, Citizen uh, News that are putting out uh, great stuff. Uh, again, the sort of strange dynamic that we have right now, where you have 
um, an increasingly tight civil society space, um, and yet um, really, really fantastic reporting coming out both from domestic outlets and from the, the big international players, right? The New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, the Guardian, um, it really creates this kind of situation where uh, there's a sort of uh, an avalanche of information and analysis that people can be uh, taking advantage of to try to understand the situation uh, there. And the problem is, how do you make enough time to, uh, to read all of it? All right, perfect. This has been really fun as usual. So Tom, thanks again for making the time. No, my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Josh. Bye. Cheers, Tom. Bye-bye. That was Thomas Kellogg, Executive Director of the Center for Asian Law at Georgetown University, interviewed by Joshua Cartwright, our multimedia editor. Go to youngchinawatchers.com to find out about upcoming events, chapters near you, or to watch one of our webinars. My name is Sam Colomby. The music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions.